All right, let me begin by sharing a completely imagined story. I mean, this is 100% fiction. This is a daydream that really didn't happen. Have I mentioned the fact that this is not real? All right, in my dream, which didn't take place, I'm walking toward my assigned seat on a cross-country flight. I've stowed my overhead bag, and just before I take my seat, I'm quickly kind of giving a once-over, a scan of the person assigned to the seat next to me. And I remark to my comfort and satisfaction that he's a completely unremarkable person. It's obvious his hairstylist is a rookie. His clothing makes it very clear that he really has no style savvy. I mean, who am I to speak? And I'm just thinking to myself, if he has any strong opinions or notions that he wants to push my direction, I just am not going to have to feel intimidated because, number one, I don't even know this person, and two, he's not all that impressive. Now, you're thinking, okay, you have just judged a person on external appearances and not on internal appearances, and that's not what God does, that's not what you should do, and you're right, but grant me a bit of carnality so that I can build an illustration, will you? After some conversation, however, I discover to my amazed delight that the person sitting next to me is Donald Arthur Carson. Now, D.A. Carson is my favorite go-to theologian. I love this man. He's one of the most respected theologians in the world today, in fact. And I have a sudden attitude shift. In fact, it's a seismic attitude shift. A strong desire now to drink from this fountain of knowledge and wisdom and simply prime the well and just bask in the overflow, hoping at the same time that this flight will never end. I hang on his words, wanting to learn from him. Okay, now shift gears with me for a moment, and let me ask this question. Why do we struggle to love God with all our heart, soul, and might? Why is our pride so robust and our service for God so half-hearted at times? How is it that we can hear the Lord, the King of the universe say, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples? And yet we're afraid to squeak out a half-hearted witness to the person who shared the cubicle with us for the last 20 years. Why? Back to... Seat 32C on my happy flight cross-country. What changed my disposition to the frumpy-looking man seated next to me? Answer, I've read many of D.A. Carson's books. I've listened to countless lectures and sermons, both online and in person. I feel like I know him. I know about him. I know his heart for God. I know his passion for the lost. I know his love for the word. I know his commitment to prayer. And I have a great admiration for D.A. Carson. If he asked me to go with him on an, a mission trip to some faraway country, some gospel-hostile land, I would go. Oh, yes, I'd consult with Lynette. But I would go in a heartbeat because my regard for him goes deep. But now here's the rub. Someone infinitely more worthy. Someone infinitely more deserving of my respect and my regard has already said to me, follow. 
someone infinitely more worthy of my respect and admiration and affection has said to me, go, disciples. And I have been at times slow, halting, fearful, and maybe at other times flat out unwilling. What is the problem here? Last week, Pastor future in which Jesus is not simply resurrected, but he's reigning as king over all. And he's called us to bring the good news of his saving grace and his sovereign governance to all peoples. Then he took us to John 21, inserting us into this intimate conversation between Jesus and Peter. Peter, just days before, denied Jesus three times. And now Jesus says to that same Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Point. The kind of faithful discipleship that Jesus calls us to is not the product of political zeal, which Peter had a full tank of that. It is the fruit, rather, of a loving delight in all that Jesus is which, by the way, became the rocket fuel of Peter's apostolic ministry from that day on. And I would add that this loving delight in Jesus is the fruit of knowing him. First, in salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, but second, in our continual lifelong study of the Word of God. That's why Peter wrote, while being fueled with that rocket fuel of love for Jesus. May may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power. Let me start over on that. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called you to his glory and excellence. 2 Peter 1, verses 2 and 3. On Palm Sunday, I'm beginning to sound like I'm not preaching my own sermon, but just reiterating Pastor Williams. But on Palm Sunday, Pastor Williams pointed out the political zeal that inflamed a frenzied mob provoking a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Like Peter, the excited Jews were fueled by a political zeal for a king they thought could deliver them from Rome rather than a king whose path to coronation required a cross. In some ways, that triumphal entry was a failed event. The crowd missed the true mission and identity of Jesus. And their ecstatic shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, those ecstatic shouts quickly morphed into, just a few days later, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. So for them, this event was a spectacular failure. Ah, but in a larger sense of the term, the triumphal entry was a huge success. This was a dramatic event carefully planned and orchestrated, carried out really by Jesus himself. He provoked, he he built it into an event. He shaped it. He prepared the people for this thing in order that he might die the death required for his ultimate coronation. He came to die. He was born a man so he could die for mankind. And that death, the death of the very Son of God, 
God, very God himself, became the credential that established his eternal rule as the Savior and Lord and King forever. That's why we love him. He loved, we love him because he first loved us. It's why we obey and serve him. It's why we've come together this morning to sing his praises and to worship him. So there, let me ask it as a question. Is there then a more triumphal entry? Is there a moment when Jesus is universally acclaimed as the one and only person qualified to rule? And to finally put an end to sin and gather all of his redeemed sons and daughters into his kingdom of holiness forever. And the answer is a resounding, yes, there is. And the reason I, I point you to this is not just simply so that we can review the events. But so, so that I might call you, I might challenge you, I might charge you to, to, to insert yourselves into that setting and that circumstance and discover together all that Jesus is for us. The event dramatically unfolded and is dramatically described for us by John in Revelation 5, which we just read. In fact, in our current study of Revelation, Dean Hoyer did a great job of leading us through this text this very chapter, pointing out its beauty and its strategic message. That's why I asked him to read this morning. And thank you, Dean, for doing that so well. For me, this chapter has been and continues to be the highlight of my study of Revelation so far. It has taken my view of Jesus to new heights and has given me a more robust affection for the one who now commands my obedience and love. If you haven't noticed, I'm laboring hard to build a case for you and me to make repeated pilgrimages back to this text so that we might bask in and understand more fully and come to appreciate and embrace the complete triumph of the crucified Lamb. But more importantly, I want us to see that his triumph is inextricably bound to his death. If it were not for his death, burial, and resurrection, there would be no triumph. There would be no coronation. There would be no presentation of the eternal King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not because I said so but because thus it has been decreed in the eternal purposes and plans of Almighty God. I want us to see that his willingness to die for us was the ultimate expression of his love for us, the compelling reason then for our praise and our worship and our willing and glad surrender to his will. It's interesting to me that you could almost divide this chapter in half. The first half is this, this grand drama that John is watching unfold before his very eyes, and we'll step through it piece by piece. But then the second half is the response of an entire heavenly audience to what they have just witnessed, and it's that response that we need to find ourselves mimicking whenever we discover and, and rediscover this grand truth about who Jesus is. So come. Let's adore him together this morning from Revelation chapter 5. And maybe the best way to unpack this chapter is just to simply follow John's 
commentary as he describes for us what he heard and what he saw. So I'm just going to, this is not going to be a profound outline. This is not an alliterated outline. It's not a theological outline. It's just a point by point taking the key words from the text and following the gaze of John as he records for us his vision. It all starts in verse 1 with a scroll. Now you notice, and maybe you think, that what we ought to point, point out first is that John is, is, is seeing God Almighty seated on a throne. But no, that was the setting prepared for us in chapter 4. He's already described in amazing technicolor this glorious display of God Almighty on his throne, his eternal throne in heaven. He is the center of that revelation, chapter 5. Now he's pointing not to, to God himself on the throne, but to something that is in his hand that is outstretched. And it's a scroll, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So right now, having read that verse, we know three things about this scroll. One is that it was in the right hand of God Almighty. Now in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, the right hand typically means power or authority. In this case, I think it implies source or ownership. God holds his own eternal decrees. All that he has planned regarding our redemption and judgment on this earth, all of God's purposes and plans redemptively and in judgment on sin, all of that has been written, it's been recorded, it's been captured in this scroll, and it's God's own plan. He wrote it. He's the author. And we know what's in that scroll because we've read the rest of the book of Revelation. But can you imagine John's thrill? A thrill of anticipation as he stares at that scroll knowing what it contains. That this is God's record of his eternal plan of redemption and judgment. And that he's about to see it unrolled and enacted. He's going to watch the drama unfold. He was about to learn what every godly man and woman throughout time has longed to know and watch unfold. It was a scroll in the hand of Almighty God. It was a scroll, number two, written on the front and the back. Now, why is that important? Come on, John. Don't waste words. He's not wasting words. It's important for us to know that it was written on the front and the back. Scrolls weren't typically written on the front and the back. It was unusual for it to be written on the front and the back. You've got to know how scrolls were, were com, com, you know, how, how they were made back in those days. Scrolls typically were made out of papyrus, which is a, a kind of a fibrous stem like celery or rhubarb, your favorite two foods, and you, if you take a little, a little cutting at the top, you can, you can peel the strip right down. And then you, they would lay those, those strips parallel, vertically, out until they achieved a square, about 16 inches or so. Then they would take more and lay them out horizontally. And then they would press and glue them with some kind of a plant-based resin and dry them until they had all these squares. And they would glue them together and make a strip about 30 to 35 feet long, which would contain a book almost the length of Revelation. But they didn't write typically on the back because if you think about it, Hebrew and Greek are both written horizontally. Hebrew, 
left to right, Greek, right to left. Now, I know I got that backwards right. I should be doing it this way. But nonetheless, they were written horizontally. So when you're writing along those, those, those strips of papyrus horizontally, you've got unimpeded it's almost like you're writing on those lined papers that you had in third grade, right? But you turn it over, and as you're writing across horizontally, you're bumping into all the seams and all the, all the fibers. So typically, you only wrote on the back if you wanted to make sure that everything you had to say was contained in one place. I think that's why John... Remarks about this. It was detailed. It was complete. The whole of God's purposes, in other words, all that he wants us to know concerning redemption and judgment, all of it is contained right there in that scroll. And it rests in the hand of the Almighty God. But he noted something else, and that is that it was sealed with seven seals. Now, oh, that wasn't unusual, because all legal all the important documents were sealed in those days. And there was a couple different ways that they would do this. In a typical scroll where you had a stick on each end and you rolled it up toward the middle, they would take another papyrus sheet, they would fold it around that scroll and seal it on the edge. And if there's something as important as maybe the final will and testament of the emperor or something like that, it, it would have been sealed with multiple seals, maybe even seven. In this case, I think, it was probably one of those scroll situations where it was unrolled from one direction with multiple seals along the top edge. Because if you go to chapter 6, you'll, you'll notice that, that, that the Lord stepped forward and he, he unrolled, the, he, he broke the first seal. And then later he broke the second seal. And then later he broke the third seal. So he unrolled it a ways until it hit the seal. And then he unrolled it again after he cut the seal and rolled it some more until all seven seals were broken and the full contents were exposed. The point, however, the more important point, however, is that once sealed, a legal document was locked until such a time it was un rolled by someone who had the official authority to cut those seals. It's not that the contents were necessarily unknown, as in the case of the final will and testament of one of the emperors, Vespasian, or whoever you want to, to talk about. There was probably multiple scrolls, multiple documents detailing all the, all the contents, but none of it could be enacted. None of it could be set in motion. None of the events, none of the, the, the details of that, that scroll would become actionable until the seals were cut on the official document locked by the seals. John is standing there. He's looking at something in the hand of Almighty God, a scroll. It's written on the front side and the back side, indicating that he's got everything in there. God, who owns that scroll, has got everything in it about our redemption and judgment on this world. And John is just desperate. He's, he's anxious as can be to hear and to see what's in that scroll. But it's sealed. Minor problem, because every sealed document has an official person to step forward and unseal that document. Because the power to affect the contents was in the cutting of the seal. Can you, as John sees all these things individually about this seal, how his anticipation, his, his desire is just mounting? And then his gaze is shifted to an angel. 
verses 2 and 3. He says, I saw a mighty angel. Look at your text. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? John saw a mighty angel. Stop there for a moment. He saw a mighty angel who delivered a universal challenge with a loud voice. Why is that important? That voice, as we come to understand, needed to be heard by everyone on earth, everyone in heaven, and everyone even under the earth. In other words, all, all heavenly creatures, mankind, and even those who are already in the grave, no one was exempted. Everyone needed to hear what this angel was saying. Almighty God has a scroll in his hand. It contains all that God is determined to reveal. In fact, just the fact that that scroll was in his hand to John said, this, this is meant for my understanding. He's going to tell me. He's going to reveal it. And then this angel steps forward and he delivers this challenge heard by everyone in the cosmos. Who is worthy to take the scroll and open the seals? Silence. Silence. And what he sees next is that no one in earth, verse 3, or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And as long as that silence persisted, John's panic elevated. So now we're shifting from the angel with a mighty voice who's uttered this universal challenge. And John, he is so involved in this vision that he sees his own response in the vision. That's interesting. So now we come to John himself, and he's giving us a window into his troubled, anxious soul at this moment. He said, verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. For John, the silence meant that the angel's challenge was going unanswered. It was a deafening, terrifying silence because if no one could be found who was duly authorized to break those seals, to, to take it from the hand of Almighty and then to break the seals of it and unroll and, and, and set in motion the eternal decrees and plans of God regarding our redemption and judgment on this earth, then God's long-awaited redemptive plan, just as it was coming to culmination, just as redemption's grand story was, was seeming to, to be on the verge of execution, canceled. Sounds like an effect of COVID. No one was found. No wonder John wept loudly. The terror of the moment could not be more intense. Think about who John is. Think about who is, what, his, what his experience had been. John had lived and walked with the Son of God, the Savior of the world. God, John had witnessed the redemptive act of Jesus on Calvary. John had been there and seen the empty tomb himself. John had met the risen Christ in person. John had written a comprehensive gospel narrative, and John had lived and preached and suffered in hope of the final act, now canceled. John's sorrow 
is incalculable. But next, his gaze is shifted to one of the 24 elders who speaks to him, verse 5, and says this. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So you're following John's gaze now as he, as he listens to this, this elder say these things to him. So now armed with this new piece of information, he's scanning the heavenly scene. And he's looking for something that looks or someone that looks like a lion or a Davidic king. Someone who might be able to fulfill all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And what he saw was, shift your gaze one more time, a lamb. Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, which, by the way, would be considered no man's land, right? Who can invade the territory? Who would dare step on the turf between the elders, the angels, the four living creatures, and the very almighty God seated on the throne described in chapter 4? Who could ever do that? No living mortal that I know. But he says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. So as John wipes the tears from his eyes, this scene before him once more becomes clear. But wait, there's a new creature standing there. There's a new persona standing there, an unmistakable figure. A lamb. He's looking for a lion. He's looking for a Davidic king. He sees a lamb, but not just any ordinary lamb. It's a lamb that had been slain. It's a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. John knows who this lamb is. He had written of him. In the prologue to his gospel, he had said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He was life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. But then he went on, and he said later, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. John came as a witness to bear witness of that light so that all might believe through him. But then later that John, in that same chapter, verse 29, says to his disciples as he sees Jesus coming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said it twice, actually, in that day. So he knows this person is, is the eternal creator, verse 1. He knows that he is the Savior, and he was life, and the life was the light of men. John came to bear witness that all might believe through him as he, as he develops it in that, in that prologue. But then he is, he's identified as the Lamb of God, the one who fulfills every Old Testament sacrificial lamb slain on a on a Jewish altar. Who is, who is the Redeemer, who, the, the redemption for mankind. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not just of one man, one family, one tribe, but one entire universe of believing human beings. This is no ordinary lamb. It's a lamb who is also a lion of the tribe of Judah, as I mentioned. If you go to Genesis 
49. This was a promise made and passed down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that the Redeemer, the Messiah, would, would sit or would come from the, the tribe of Judah. This is the root and shoot of David, as John describes in chapter 22, verse 15, as well as here, which means that he is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. This is the line of the tribe of Judah. This is the root and shoot of David. This is a slain lamb. This is a slain lamb with seven horns, meaning he has all the power of the universe. He is a slain lamb with seven eyes, which means he's perfect in insight. He knows all things. He is a risen slain lamb. He is a risen slain lamb standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. Who can penetrate that circle of glory? Answer, only one being, Jesus the slain, risen, conquering Lamb of God. Action. Jesus then, he sees. Take. He went. He crossed the uncrossable bridge. He invaded the no man's land of absolute holiness. And he stepped right across that and took from the hand of Almighty God in a most dramatic moment... The scroll, the scroll containing all of God's redemptive purposes and all of his judgments on, etern- on human sin. He took that scroll and he took it to himself intending to break the seals and set it all in motion. The question I asked myself as we first read Revelation chapter 5 was why couldn't God unroll this scroll. Why couldn't God cut these seals? I mean, is not God omnipotent? Does not God have all the, all the power of the universe? Yes, God does. And yes, Jesus is God. And yet, the person of God in the, in the divine but unified trinity is not the one who went to the cross and poured out his life blood for the, for the sins, the forgiveness of the sins of mankind. Jesus did that. So only Jesus, though he's one with God, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. John made that very clear. So let's not, let's not have arguments about the trinity here this morning. There is one God in three persons, the person of Jesus Christ went to the cross. The person of Jesus Christ is the only one that could step across that unfathomable chasm and reach out and take the scroll from the hand of Almighty God with whom he is one. You explain that, and I'll sit and listen. God could not because what qualified the Lamb to do so is explained in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals because, or literally, for this reason, you were slain. By your blood, you redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He didn't redeem every single human being on the planet. He redeemed people from every tribe and language and people who would come to him in faith, accepting the work that he had done for them on the cross of Calvary. Is that you? But you see, there couldn't have been a crown at that first triumphal entry. It couldn't have happened. 
the redemptive plan of God from eternity past called for a cross before the coronation of King Jesus. So the drama that John describes so far is breathtaking. I think this is the greatest drama ever written. But what follows is where you and I need to insert ourselves. You see, the Bible is not written as a Wikipedia entry. Just the facts, folks. Just the facts. The Bible was written as a call to our loving surrender to our sovereign reigning King Jesus. What John saw next is what happened in heaven as a result of what took place. The dramatic entrance of the worthy lamb rocked the heavenly scene. And every time we reflect on it, it should rock our souls. You see, heaven exploded in song celebrating the triumph of the lamb at this point. Let me read the song for you again. You heard it once. You could hear it 25 times this morning, and it would still not be enough. They sang a new song. Not one just composed last week, so it qualifies for acceptable worship music because it's less than 24 hours old. This is a new song. It's a fresh song. It's a song that has special significance right now because of what has just been discovered. And this is what it said. I wish I could sing it for you. I wish we could all just get up here or, or form a big circle and, and maybe put the, the sopranos and the altars and the tenors and the baritones and the basses and the who, 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 who knows, what are those obligados that, that do their thing? All right? I wish we could just divide up and make a great choir and sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign forever and ever on earth. Oh, I added something there. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, listen to this song. Think about how you would sing this. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, just the way Dean read it this morning. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all that is in the sea and all that is in them saying, To the Lamb who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, to, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And do you know what you do after you sing that song? You hit the ground. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the second time, verse 8 also, it mentions they fell down. They were on their faces. I don't know how you sing on your face, but, you, you know, when you're redeemed, when you're glorified, you can do it from any position. The theme of their song could be distilled to one word. Worthy. This term by itself simply means deserving. But what follows narrows the field to one, okay? Just one person is worthy. One person is truly deserving. Who do you know who is truly worthy at this level? What I mean by that is that he or she has all the qualities and attributes that make them perfectly deserving to receive from Almighty God and all creatures in heaven and earth all of the following. One, power. 
all power to carry out every desire and plan. How dangerous would that be in most of our hands? Wealth, all the collected wealth of the universe from the hands of God and all creatures, bring it all and lay it at the feet of Jesus because he is worthy of it. Wisdom. God gave a heap of this to Solomon, but to Jesus, Jesus has it all. But Solomon didn't prove worthy in his use of it. Jesus always does and always will. Might, again, the ability to get everything done that you wish done. Who can be trusted with this? Jesus can be. Honor, that's reverence and esteem. All of it collected from every undeserving source. Every stellar athlete, every outstanding Hollywood actor and actress, every politician who thinks of himself more highly than he ought to, and every person on the face of the earth, take all of us and put us together in one lump, take all that honor and esteem that we think we deserve, multiply it by a gazillion, and give it to Jesus because he's worthy of it. Glory. A universal recognition of his worth, not just a few, but all. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, with whom, by the way, his glory is inseparable. And blessing. That's accolades. Jesus is the one being in the universe for whom we cannot exaggerate praise. Most human eulogies, and even those extended eulogies we call biographies, fail to see the line between the real and the imagined. But with Jesus, imagination fails every time because no words can carry the weight, no imagination can conceive of the weight of glory that Jesus deserves. Point. Once we see Jesus in this way, I said all that to bring us to this. Once we see Jesus in this way, and understand at the same time that Jesus shunted all the accoutrements of his glory to the side, crushed his majestic being into a human form, and willingly went to a cross to pay for your sins and mine. Once we get this, we cannot but love him. To see him in this light replaces our ridiculous pride with a sweet humility. To see him this way makes our redemption a truly incomprehensible gift. To see him this way awakens a love for him that exceeds all other loves, including our love for self. To see him this way awakens in us a new, fresh song. Maybe it's a song that's been written for many, many years, but it becomes fresh to us. As you sing, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior thou art. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. Take your song. Sing it with a new and fresh voice and renewed soul. And to see Jesus this way truly casts us face down before him saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? I'll gladly serve the one who has loved me this way. Please let me be as one of your hired servants. And then you know what we hear him say? If you love me, keep my commandments.
And that drives us to the word. Lord, teach me. Show me your way that I might follow you. And we get to the text that our pastor took us to last week in Matthew 28. And we can't not share the good news of Jesus Christ with a world that has yet to explode with a sense of his greatness and wonder at his gift of salvation and sing together the praises of God. I don't particularly like masks, but I'll tell you, the one time masks become a source of irritation to me is when we're trying to sing together as a body. And I can't wait for the day we can throw these things away and just sing and not choke on our own spit. God, speed that day for us. I'm not saying we shouldn't wear masks today. Just listen to Jesus as he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And why wouldn't we love him? After we've done our pilgrimage to Revelation 5 again and again and again and seen the presentation of the only one who is worthy of our affection, our surrendered wills, and our lifelong service. Father, I pray that you'd use these words of this chapter over and over again in our lives. Lord, help us to be able to sing a new song as we, as we find ourselves working the fields of the harvest together. Not there because we love the criticisms and the pushback of unbelief, but because we love the accolades of the one and only person who matters to us in all the universe. We just want to hear at the end of the row, well done, good and faithful servant. No other accolades mean anything anymore. Humble us, Lord, with your gift. Motivate us, Lord, with your love. Inspire us with your spirit. And may we become your fearless, committed, loyal servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.